You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 12. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's episode is special for two reasons. First, because we are rolling out a brand new segment of the show called The Birds and the Beats. This new segment will focus on current events in wildlife conservation and will be presented by the newest member of our Eyes on Conservation team, Ben Mirren. The other reason that today's episode is particularly special is because it is the first episode we've produced that will be airing on public radio in addition to being released as a podcast. Building a Greener Idaho is a weekly radio show that airs on Radio Boise, that's 89.9 and 93.5 FM for folks who are here in the Treasure Valley of Idaho. And we decided to co-produce this week's show with Building a Greener Idaho because our topic of discussion is of particular interest to the Boise community this week. By airing this week's discussion session on public radio in Boise, we can be certain that folks here in the Treasure Valley community have easy access to the message that our guests will be sharing with us. So I'll be introducing this week's guests in just a minute, but first let's jump into our new current event segment, The Birds and the Beats. Welcome to The Birds and the Beats. My name is Ben Mirren, and I'm proud to be a part of this podcast. This week I want to bring to you a story about the Cassin's Auklet. The Cassin's Auklet lives on islands off the west coast of the United States, burrowing its nest into the ground where it lays one egg over a cycle of usually 79 days and feeds itself on a diet of plankton. Its population stretches from the Baja Peninsula in California to Alaska's Aleutian Islands and totals between 1 million and 3.5 million birds. However, around Halloween last year, thousands of these birds started washing up dead on the beaches from San Francisco to British Columbia. One volunteer at Twin Harbors State Park in Washington reported seeing more than 130 dead birds in a single day, and death tolls on some beaches are 100 times greater than any bird die-off ever tallied there. Scientists at the Coastal Observation and Seabird Survey Team, or COAST, are extrapolating the death toll for Cassin's Auklets to be between 50,000 and 100,000 birds, and they've been tracking seabird deaths for almost 20 years. Now, this number of deaths may not have been perplexing at first, when young auklets fledge, they all enter the water at the same time and compete for f- the same food resources. They're also new to the task of survival in a more holistic sense, from finding food to reading and responding to weather to avoiding predators. For various reasons, the birth class of Cassin's auklets last summer was historically huge, which of course would mean that more birds would die, but not 100 times more. For comparison, not one of the five largest bird die-offs ever recorded by the U.S. Geological Survey exceeded 11,000 deaths. The sheer scale and geographic distribution of the die-off rules out a large breeding class as the sole cause, but scientists still aren't sure what the problem is. Supervisors of Coast, along with seabird ecologists at the University of Washington and a couple of different stations in California, suspect that warm water upwellings in the Pacific are to blame. It's certainly plausible since the die-off coincides with a historically large upwelling in the Pacific Ocean that contributed to a drought in California and gave the state its hottest year on record in 2014. Scientists have also been encountering other large-scale die-offs among a variety of sea creatures, suggesting that this may be part of a sequence of events that are starting to happen with greater frequency. Currently, the die-off among seabirds is limited to just the Cassin's auklet, and scientists have yet to ascertain why, but as barometers for ocean health, their increase in mortality rates cannot bode well for their environment. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if the cause or causes behind the die-offs begin to affect other bird species in the near future. After all, most of those hypothesized causes are systemic, and Kazan's auklets aren't the only birds in their region that eat environmentally sensitive species that quickly respond to climate changes and can in turn affect fish populations and other bird populations. We have to see how this issue unfolds. So I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, you, you referenced the, you know, one of the ideas that scientists have uh, regarding what has caused this die-off uh, as to be this sort of uh, upwelling event of warmer water in that area. Um, I mean, is this something that we can expect to be seeing continuously moving forward? I mean, is this a rare event or is this something that, you know, we might start seeing more and more frequently as a result of changes in climate? I think it is something that could be uh, more frequent as a result of climate change, Matt. It's, it really is unusual to see upwellings of the magnitude that, of the one that uh, hit the, the West Coast last year in 2014. But simultaneously, you know, we're seeing more die-offs every year among different types of species. There's a significant uptick in mass mortality events um, among, you know, different species of fish and some kinds of sea urchins. It, it doesn't there doesn't necessarily appear to be a causal link just yet, but there are a number of different populations that are that are dying at a much faster rate. And um, yeah, I think the the sort of departing theory here is that a it's probably a, a result of climate change and of an increase in overall temperature, and b it's not something that we can just sort of sweep under the rug. You know, the the thing that people tend to do with climate change issues is end with that sentence and then say, okay, it's climate change. It's part of this larger thing. But, you know, as, as, as we've discussed, the, not all the causes are really clear for a specific species of seabird dying at such a massive scale. So there needs to be more research done here. It's kind of a story that we need to continue to keep our eye on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it definitely sounds like something that, um, that, that we will definitely be keeping an eye on. And, um, I'm sure we'll be, uh, coming back to in uh, future segments of the birds and the beats here on the eyes on conservation podcast. So before we, uh, before we jump out of this segment and move on to our interview here, Ben, um, I'm hoping that you can just give us a little bit of information about the music that folks are going to hear, um, during our transition. The concept behind the birds and the beats is twofold. One, to keep up with news that affects different pockets of the environment and of the conservation landscape as we see it through this podcast. But it's also to repurpose that information and present it in a more engaging way. What the birds and the beats does is take sounds of the animals affected by the stories that we examine each week and literally combine them into a new type of composition. My background is as a professional performing artist and a DJ, and I have taken samples of not only the Cassin's Auklet, but a lot of different seabirds that all live in the same ecosystem. And as I mentioned before, the Cassin's Auklet die-off cannot be a single contained incident. You know, they're barometers for the health of the environment in which they live, which means that other species undoubtedly are going to be affected. And that, of course, includes other seabirds. So what you're about to hear is a composition made entirely out of different types of birds that are singing in that environment as a reminder that these sounds are incredibly engaging and can even be treated as music in their own way. But if we don't st stay around and pay attention to the stories that they tell about conservation in the environment, we may not hear them for very long. You'll ultimately hear me combining the different types of bird sounds with the human equivalent of bird song, human beatbox. It's what I do professionally here in New York City, 
And essentially, the sounds that are contained within human beatboxing tell a story of their own as well. Just like birdsong, they are musical, but they also reflect different realities beyond the music that are part of a larger conversation and tell you a story about where a person comes from. The sounds that you'll be hearing me do are different, are an assemblage of vocal impressions and original sounds that I've come up with through my own unique life experience. But if you listen to the conversation between the beatboxing and the bird sounds together, you'll hear ultimately a combination and a composition of song that is both timely but also ephemeral, depending on how we treat the environmental issues at hand. Fantastic. Well, as we transition out of this segment, you'll be hearing the musical stylings of Ben Mirren along with the Cassins Auckland. <laughs> Well, that concludes our first installment of The Birds and the Beats. I just can't believe how interesting and catchy that song is that Ben created using nothing but bird vocalizations and his skills as a beatboxer. I know that I'm excited to see what he comes up with for future episodes. For folks who want to see all of the different bird species that are represented in Ben's song, we'll have all that information up in the show notes for this episode. So it's now time to jump into this week's interview. Our topic of discussion this week is a very special outdoor education program called Boise's GK-12 through program. We'll be talking with the Environmental Education Coordinator for the Foothills Learning Center, Carolyn Volk, as well as the Graduate Student Coordinator for the GK-12 through program, Karen Viskupic. This week's conversation is an extension of the short video that we produced about the GK-12 through program, which we are releasing alongside this podcast episode over on the Eyes on Conservation video podcast, so be sure to check that out as well. Now let's jump into that interview. Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho. I'm your co-host, Chris Wilson. Building a Greener Idaho is a weekly program on Radio Boise. Each Tuesday at 3 p.m., we dedicate a half hour to discussing how to create a greener Idaho through sustainable development practices. Today's show is a collaboration with Eyes on Conservation, a wildlife conservation podcast series created by Wildlands, which is a local conservation video production organization. My guest co-host today is Matthew Podolsky, co-founder of Wildlands. Matthew, thanks for being on the show today, and uh, please tell our audience who, who you've brought with you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on the program, Chris. Um, yeah, Eyes on Conservation is a series that explores conservation issues from all across the globe. Each month we pick a theme for the show, and this month we're focusing on community-based conservation programs here in the city of Boise. So we're extremely happy to be partnering with Building a Greener Idaho for two very special episodes of the show. And today we're talking about Boise's GK-12 through program, which was a program that paired graduate students from Boise State University with teaching opportunities at local nature centers. Uh, this program ran from the fall of 2008 through the summer of 2014. We have with us in the studio Karen Viskupic, who served as the graduate student coordinator of the GK-12 program, and Carolyn Volk, who is 
is the environmental education coordinator at the Foothills Learning Center, which was one of the uh, learning centers that partnered with the GK-12 program. Uh, now, before we get into the specifics of the GK-12 program, um, I, I want to hear from you first, Carolyn. Um, I'm curious to learn a bit about your background um, and to learn what led you to become involved in the Foothills Learning Center. Well, I um, got a bachelor's degree in resource conservation from the University of Montana a long time ago and had a lot of experience after that in outdoor education, outward bound kind of programs, college field studies courses, um, and moved to Boise in a different career and heard about the beginnings of the Foothills Learning Center and wanted to be involved. So I got involved first as a volunteer and then was hired as a part-time staff person and moved into the director role when my um, boss, Jenny Riley, retired a couple of years ago. So it's been a gradual process and a return to my roots, in a sense. Fantastic. So I'm hoping you can tell us uh, a little bit about the mission of the Foothills Learning Center. Um, I'm, curious, I'm curious to know what role you see uh, the center as playing uh, in the community here in Boise. Well, the mission of the Foothills Learning Center is to promote, through environmental education, service opportunities, and outreach, the preservation and responsible use of the Boise foothills, and to foster an understanding and appreciation of our place in the natural world. And basically, our vision is that we believe that humans protect what they love and love what they understand. So if we can build a knowledge and a love of the natural world, that's the key to protecting it. That's kind of what we're all about. So I'm curious about the history of the Foothills Learning Center and how it's interconnected with the movement to preserve Hull's Gulch. Um, and so I know that Hull's Gulch was preserved long before the Foothills Learning Center uh, came into existence, but um, it, it, it seems to me that there's uh, the history of uh, the movement to preserve Hull's Gulch and how the Foothills Learning Center was founded are, are interconnected. So the preservation of Hull's Gulch was an effort that happened in the late 80s, early 90s, it was definitely the beginning of a lot of um, Foothills awareness in Boise. After that, the city acquired the land that the Foothills Learning Center is on, which was an old home site. The McCord family lived there from the late 60s to um, 1997 when they sold to the city. Um, we're really lucky that they sold to the city rather than any number of developers that might have wanted to put houses on our spot. Um, and after that land acquisition, the citizens in Boise passed the Foothills Levy in 2001. All of these efforts and all of this was just building momentum for the awareness and the appreciation of the Foothills and um, kind of led to and laid the foundation for the Foothills Learning Center coming to be. Sure, and I, I think there might be some folks uh, out there who maybe have never been to the Foothills Learning Center um, or aren't familiar with sort of the location where, where Hull's Gulch is. Maybe you could just sort of briefly explain where you guys are at. Hull's Gulch is the drainage that's right behind Camelsback Park. So if you're standing on top of Camelsback Hill looking up into the foothills, you're looking up in the direction of the Learning Center. It's just... 10 minutes from downtown Boise, but a world away, and right in the heart of some of the most popular trails in our amazing Ridge to Rivers trail system. So it's a pretty sweet spot. Yeah, it's definitely an amazing spot, and if there are folks who haven't had a chance to get up there and visit, I, I would definitely recommend that. 
Um, so we're going to kind of switch gears and, and, and start talking about the GK-12 through program. So I wanted to start off sort of talking about the Foothills Learning Center because you guys are one of the most important partners um, in this program. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to jump over to you, Karen, um, and maybe you could just sort of give me an introduction as to, I mean, what is the GK-12 through program? It's got kind of a funny name. It does have that. a funny name. <laughs> um, so GK-12 is an acronym from the National Science Foundation. It stands for Graduate STEM Fellows in K-12 through Education. And, of course, that acronym includes another acronym, which was STEM, and STEM is Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. So um, this is a, a program that was funded by the National Science Foundation through a grant to Boise State. So we had um, two and a quarter million dollars from the National Science Foundation to um, fund graduate students in the sciences to partner with K-12 education in the community. Um, and so the 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 goal of the program from NSF's perspective was to improve the communication skills of graduate students in the sciences. So we know that um, scientists have a not very good reputation <laughs> for uh, communicating the importance of their work to the community. So this program was designed to help students um, better communicate their science. And I'm doing a great job <laughs> with my communication right now. No, it's, it's great. And it, it sparks a question for me because um, I'm told that the NSF National Science Foundation grants are very competitive and difficult to acquire. So just maybe briefly, you could tell us why Boise was competitive. Is it because of our proximity to the foothills? Is it because we have scientists that are poor communicators? Or what, <laughs> That's you know, a what great is it about question. Boise? <laughs> I don't think we have scientists who are poor communicators, although there's always room for improvement for everyone, right? Um, I think one of the, the reasons why we received this grant was because our partnership was so unique. So there are GK-12 GK through 12 programs across the country. Most of them take graduate students and partner them with a specific classroom teacher or a specific school where they're working with a small number of students in a certain grade or maybe a, a, you know, a middle school population, for example. But our program was quite different. So we took students and we placed them in an informal learning center, like the Foothills Learning Center. Um, our other partners were the MK Nature Center and the Boise Environmental Watersh Boise Watershed Environmental Education Center. And so um, our graduate students had a very different experience. So they spent a year-long fellowship at a specific learning center where they were interacting with lots of different students and community members across the age spectrum um, teaching things within their area of expertise and then also slightly outside of their area of expertise as well. So they had a really different experience. And so I think that unique model is something that helped us to get funding from the National Science Foundation. Great. Yeah, it's it really is a unique model. And um, I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what sort of benefits you feel like you saw come out of this unique approach? I mean, both for uh, the students um, but also for the community uh, members um, as a whole. I think there were a lot of benefits. So if we can start with the graduate students, maybe. Um, they had such a variety of teaching experiences. So working with pre-K students all the way up through um, adult members of the community who are visiting these learning centers. And so they might be teaching a group of kindergartners in the morning and then a group of fifth graders later that afternoon. And then on the weekend, they have the whole community. So really needing to um, develop their skills, talking to a variety of different audiences and in a lot of 
a lot of different um, circumstances. So it could be indoor in a classroom or visiting a class in the community or outside on a trail in the rain. You know, they did everything. <laughs> um, so, so they're well prepared and I think they're very flexible in terms of their teaching style. And then um, benefits to the community. I think there are a lot of benefits there as well. So one of the biggest benefits of this model is that um, so many people from the community had access to these scientists from Boise State. So it wasn't just a, a certain classroom filled with 30 students. It was anybody who wanted to visit one of these learning centers had and, access to you know, this. The Foothills Learning Center, as an example, sees over 10,000 students and community members a year. We go into classrooms with lessons. Kids come out on field trips um, by the busload. And then we have public programs that we do on weekends and evenings. So, you know, they, our public, our audience got to interact with these awesome early career scientists. And if I could just speak to the students' benefit, um, I remember many, many students that in the middle of a lesson would look up with with just adoring eyes at this young female graduate geologist and say, I want to be a geologist when I grow up. And it was just amazing the um, interaction that you saw with these, you know, these are early career scientists. Mostly these were young 20s, 30, you know, early 30s students. Um, so the students, particularly the upper elementary students, had could really relate to them. They're not much older than they are, really. And, and then the high school students even more. So I think it gave these students a real different picture of what a scientist was. And a lot, well, to a person, every graduate student that came through the Foothills Learning Center was just an awesome person to begin with and passionate about what they were doing, excited about school. And I think a lot of the kids that we see in our school system and the kids that visit us out at the Learning Center just haven't really seen somebody so excited about school like that. And I think the, the role models that they provided were just invaluable and so exciting to watch. Yeah, that's great. I mean, and, and just it, it sounds like a really wide variety of different uh, uh, sort of avenues, uh, different uh, areas where um, these graduate students are going out to teach, right? So one day maybe they're uh, in a more tradi traditional classroom setting. Uh, one day they're maybe at one of these learning centers, um, and the next day maybe they're performing a lesson in the outdoors, hmm. right? Um, which seems like it would provide a huge benefit, I mean, both to them and their learning experience and learning how to teach and convey um, these science concepts um, to a variety of uh, kids of different age groups. But, yeah, also for these uh, younger kids who are uh, uh, learning from them and getting this um, broader picture of what being a scientist really is. The other thing that I think was really valuable was the window you got into Boise State University. I had no idea, just to use myself as an example, of the programs and the caliber of science that was going on at the university, whether it's the students that it draws. Very few of our graduate students were from Idaho. They, they come from all over the country to study here for various programs. And so I had no idea the depth and the breadth of what Boise State was doing and the kinds of students that they were attracting to these graduate programs. Yeah, I mean, that brings up a fantastic point, right, which is that 
I mean, this program was, I think, bringing Boise State, bringing the community within Boise State University closer to the surrounding community of Boise, right? I Absolutely. Mean, Karen, maybe you could kind of touch on that a little bit. Absolutely. So I think the program provided a, a great way for students and the community to see what kind of science was going on at Boise State. So one of the goals of the project was to have each of the fellows really um, include their area of expertise or in- inject their specialty into some of the lessons at each center so that the community could learn from these experts um, and see how that science related to what was going on in their own community. Well, I'm hearing two very important topics that are relevant in um best practices in community development and, and making a whole and healthy community, and that's silo busting, right? We don't even know what's happening across town in the university, and it's important to mix it up so we all know, you know, what people are working on and why it's important and why we're all interrelated and it impacts us. And also the access to intergenerational um, activities, you know, it's, it's not just about moving through your life with one age class or one peer group, but, you know, we need to interact with a broad spectrum of people so that we stay whole and, and healthy as a community. Um, and with that, I think we're going to take a quick break so we can hear a message from our underwriters and we'll be right back to Building a Greener Idaho. We're back with Building a Greener Idaho, the collaboration this week with uh, Eyes on Conservation, a locally produced podcast series by Wildlands. And my guest co-host today, Matthew Podolsky, has brought some interesting guests from the uh, GK-12 program. And Matthew's going to take us right back into the conversation. Yeah, so before we uh, left off here, we were chatting about how this program sort of brought the community within Boise State University closer to the surrounding larger community of, of Boise itself, um, which seems like a really fantastic benefit that the GK-12 program provided um, to both the folks at BSU, um, but also the folks within the larger community of Boise. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is um, if this program was so unique. I mean, we spent all this time talking about how fantastic it is. Um, but I mean, I, we also start off the beginning of this conversation talking about how, I mean, this program had a start and an end date, right? So this program is no longer currently active. Um, and so, you know, Karen, you mentioned that one of the reasons why you think, you know, we, that you got NSF funding for this project is because of this sort of unique approach, right? So I'm wondering, A, why didn't NSF continue funding for the project and b you know are there other i mean did this project inspire similar projects elsewhere that are sort of using this model approach that's a great question Matt. so um i think other gk12 programs have done some informal science ed partnerships but not to the extent that we have here in boise and as for no continuing funding um nsf actually ended the entire GK-12 program. (laughs) So there are no more GK-12 programs um, that are being funded. So whatever ones are out there will continue to exist until their grant funding runs out. But, um, you know, NSF often changes their programmatic priorities and old programs go and new ones are developed. And so um, unfortunately, GK-12 was one that is not being continued. So we're in the situation now, right, where there's there's a little bit of a gap, right? I mean, there, for uh, uh, a number of years, there was this great program and this sort of community interaction between the graduate students at Boise State and all these learning centers and also the families and the parents and the kids who visited these nature centers. So, um, Carolyn, I'm wondering how uh, you and the folks at the Foothills Learning Center have been 
dealing with uh, this situation? Well, you know, we spent quite a bit of time and effort last year um, looking for grant opportunities and trying to find funders. We knew the end was in sight, and but we just don't have the bandwidth to really spend a lot of time writing grants and finding grants and, and funding opportunities. So we've thrown a few out there that haven't um, gotten funded. And then we were very fortunate this fall, actually just right before Christmas, to hear of an AmeriCorps funding opportunity. So we got through the fall with just the two staff that we have um, through the city staffing, and um, we're looking ahead to the spring, which is our busiest time of year, just hoping that we could fill in with volunteers or whatever, but we were able to secure some late AmeriCorps funding and have one and a half AmeriCorps staff to help us this year. AmeriCorps is a federal program, a kind of a work program. And so we've gotten, uh, we actually scooped up a graduate student from U of I from, that was recently up at the McCall Outdoor Science School and another fellow who is on his way to the McCall Outdoor Science School, he hopes, in the fall. So we have some great um, early career scientist type people kind of along the same lines as the fellows. Um, and that's, that was a pretty lucky break for us. The programs at the Foothills Learning Center are funded by the city of Boise. We operate through the Parks and Recreation Program, but our budget is limited. We have two not quite full-time staff to deliver all of our programs. And one of the, one of the great things about the GK-12 program is that we were able to reach that many more people because we had that many more teachers. Um, we had anywhere from two to three graduate fellows a year, which would you know double our capacity um, to reach people. So we have been worried, and we have a we have an immediate solution right now for this coming spring, but the long term solution really isn't there to um, to meet the needs that have grown over the years. The Foothills Learning Center opened in two thousand and five. Um, our programs took a couple of years to get going. We had the GK-12 program for six years, and we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary this spring. So a lot of years we've been used to this extra help, and the community is used to the capacity that we were able to meet. So it's a, it's a, big, it's a big change. Well, it's fantastic to hear that you at least have this temporary uh, sort of way to, to fill that gap. Um, for sure. Um, but yeah, obviously, it's, it, it is important to find that long-term solution. Um, Karen, I wonder, from your perspective, um, is there any other type of program to, that, uh, to give uh, these graduate students that you're working with at Boise State sort of an equivalent type of experience where you're exposing them to uh, uh, kids of all different ages and teaching them how to sort of communicate these scientific concepts? Maybe on a small scale, but not to the extent that a year-long fellowship at a learning center provides. So when, when that fellowship is one of your primary responsibilities and you're there every week, um, you have just a, a greater experience than if it's something that you're doing once a semester as a volunteer or perhaps as um, you know, a service learning component of a class that you're teaching. So um, the short answer is no. We, we don't really have an, an equivalent of that. Um, it was a really unique program, um, and I think we spent those six years developing a fantastic model where um, 
you know, the learning centers knew what to expect from us and we knew what to expect from them. And we had a great process in place for selecting fellows that uh, would be successful and work well with the community. And so that's still in place. Um, you know, the missing piece is funding for, for those fellowships for the students. I guess the other thing, you know, there we have some great people to help us this year. And um, but but what we lose is that community university partnership that was so amazing and that um, that direct line and connection with each other. We have maintained our connection with many of the fellows that are still in town. One is going to be a guest presenter tomorrow for a, <laughs> an adult group that is going to be up at the Learning Center. So... Um, those connections are still there. Karen and I still you know, are connected. Yep. But that just rich partnership and that win-win that, that where the graduate students got a lot out of it and we got out a lot out of it, that's what I miss is that just model partnership. It's just something that ought to happen. We are a perfect proving ground for students. Um, the university is right there and are doing amazing things that are relevant issues, working on issues relevant to our local community. And it's really been, it's been exciting to inject those local issues and those local relevant subjects into our subject matter at the learning center. And that's what I miss is just the excitement of that for both um, our students, the community and the graduate fellows themselves. A lot of these graduate fellows have discovered teaching careers. They knew they didn't know they wanted and are off and running in other, um, on, on different paths than they knew they were, than, than they were headed on to begin with. That's, I think that's Ka- neat. Carolyn brings up an important point, which is another benefit, I think, to the community or to society in general, is that a lot of the fellows who have gone through this program have developed this commitment to outreach and to connecting with the community that they then carry on to whatever careers they're doing next, whether it's in teaching or not, um, as Carolyn said, a lot of the fellows continue to volunteer there, <laughs> whether they're still in town or when they're just passing through town. Um, they have this commitment to um, to making a connection with the, whatever community they're in. Yeah, which is amazing. And I mean, that's something that uh, th- that's one of the things that really drew me into this project um, through what I do at Wild Lens, because a lot of the work that I do is is similar in a lot of ways uh, to what you guys are talking about in that we're working with uh, scientists and biologists um, and trying to, to get them to see the big picture and to learn how to communicate their scientific ideas and concepts um, to uh, more of a general audience, the type of audience that, that doesn't have that background in science. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're right. And, it, it, I mean, so sort of the the message I'm getting from you guys is that you know, you had this really fantastic program for the past six years. Um, it's been a struggle now that the funding has ended. But it, it sounds to me like a lot of the benefits are still there, right? I mean, these connections that were established between uh, the Boise community and the community of Boise State, I mean, is still there to a certain extent, which is great. Um, and it's just a matter of, uh, of finding a source of funding to sort of continue it on that same uh, level that, that you guys had for so many years. So I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, what is, is there anything that we can sort of direct uh, uh, members of the Boise community who might be listening, um, anything that folks can do to, to help? Maybe it's just volunteering their time at the Foothills Learning Center, um, or maybe there's volunteer opportunities at Boise State. Um, 
or maybe we just need to find someone who uh, is willing to donate some money to <laughs> restart the program. Well, what do you guys think? Well, um, all of the above. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, we have full plates at the Learning Center, the staff that's there. Karen is a faculty member in the Geosciences program at BSU. Writing grants, she wrote the original grant. It is kudos to Karen for doing it in the first place. But finding the time, to, an NSF grant is like, I've, I've never experienced that. I, I, it's overwhelmingly long and complicated. So I think, um, yes, time. We could use people that had the time to put into helping us look for possibilities. Um, if we find possibilities, people that have some experience with writing grants would be fabulous. Um, raising awareness, just like this program, we really appreciate the opportunity to remind the community of what they had um, and raise awareness for the program because it really was an exciting model partnership. Um, and so anybody that is out there that has experienced any of our programs delivered by any of our grad students, letters of support, um, phone calls to the mayor, phone calls to Bob Kustra, where did it go? Why did it go away? <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, and, you know, just any of that. So, And then funding, you know, you know, we don't have an active fundraising campaign right now. Um, it's something that we've thought about, but, you know, it's not off the ground yet. So don't know what to say about that. But One thing that I might add from a community involvement standpoint is there tends to be a lot of um, science graduates that may have moved into a different line of work or profession. And they have this knowledge base and skill set that, you know, can get overlooked or on, you know, be unused. Um, and, and then people are often reluctant to... Uh, converse in that way because they think of science as something that's external to people's day-to-day -day lives or dorky or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, in reality, that information is important and people are interested. And if they're, if they're looking for an active way to tap into that and share, you know, what you're doing at the Foothills Learning Center and these other uh, um, ed education providers is uh, a great place to plug in and use those skills that they have. Well, you know, we have always, um, we have a long history at the Learning Center of having incredible partnerships with community members and volunteers that are experts in some area. So certainly that's another open door is to, we've had many, many fabulous presenters on our weekend programs be, before the fellows, during the fellows, even now, even still. So um, we always welcome anybody that wants to share their knowledge with the public. Fantastic. Well, it, it sounds like there are some, some good opportunities for folks to get involved, um, specifically at the Foothills Learning Center. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there is still sort of this looming question of funding, but, I mean, I think that's something that, uh, you know, based on my conversations with uh, both of you uh, over the past, uh, geez, how long have we been working together on, <laughs> on this video project? So um, I guess I'll mention that we do have... Uh, a short documentary about uh, Boise's GK-12 through program that we'll be releasing alongside this uh, podcast slash radio episode. So folks can definitely check that out to uh, sort of um, get that visual component um, and, you know, see these programs in action. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll say that, you know, through the time that, that we've been working together on this video project, um, it seems clear to me that that the two of you and, and also some of the other partners, some of the other folks who were involved in the GK-12 program um, have this commitment to finding a way to uh, uh, continue uh, 
achieving the goals that this program allowed you guys to to achieve um, and whether I mean that program may never look exactly the way that it did at the time when this NSF grant was active um, but it's clear that you're sort of working towards reaching that that point where um, this amazing community interaction between Boise State and the surrounding community can continue to take place. Um, and, yeah, I would encourage folks to, um, to you know, check out the show notes for this page, um, which you can find at eyesonconservation.com, um, and leave a comment. Uh, you know, get in touch with me, get in touch with Carolyn, get in touch with Karen, and, you know, uh, uh, let, let us know uh, what you think you can do to sort of help out. Well, that's about all the time we have today uh, for our Building a Greener Idaho program. Uh, Matt, I really thank you for bringing on some great guests. And Carolyn and Karen, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, Go ahead and tune in next Tuesday at 3 p.m. for the next episode of Building a Greener Idaho. Thanks for listening. All right. That was our conversation with Carolyn Volk from the Foothills Learning Center and Karen Viskupic from Boise State University. This conversation really reminds me of how lucky I am to live in Boise, Idaho. The movement to preserve Hull's Gulch that Carolyn talked about is a fantastic example of how this community responds when something that they love and value is facing a threat. I can't even imagine what the city would look like without having this amazing natural area right in our backyard, and we owe the folks at the Foothills Learning Center a huge debt for their role in teaching people, and kids specifically, about the important natural systems that are found here. So what can we do to help preserve the GK-12 program? This is a project that is universally considered to have provided a huge benefit to the community, and yet it has proven to be extremely difficult to find the funding needed to maintain it. One important thing that you can do is volunteer your time. Whether this is at the Foothills Learning Center or another nature or outdoor learning center here in town, you're providing a huge benefit to these organizations while at the same time learning new things yourself. Most importantly, if you really do want to help in the mission to restore the GK-12 through program, uh, get in touch with Karen or Carolyn and just ask them what you can do to help. Uh, contact information as well as links to learn more about the Foothills Learning Center and the other GK-12 through partner organizations can be found on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC12. That's wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC12. And of course, you can watch our new short documentary over on the Eyes on Conservation video podcast. Uh, This video is called Boise's GK-12 Program, Scientists Inspiring Students and the Community. So that video is uh, uh, released as a part of the Eyes on Conservation video podcast, but you can also find that on our website. A big thanks to everyone for listening this week. Uh, This week's interview was produced by Chris Wilson from Building a Greener Idaho and myself, Matt Podolsky. The Birds and the Beat segment was produced by Ben Mirren, and our new theme music is by The Hubers. (laughs) 